Hello everyone and welcome back to Inside Art Scroll, where the books you read and the people who write them come to life. Today we are joined by Rabbi Yechiel Spiro, prolific author of many best-selling books, including his latest on the capital of Yeshiv Beseser. First of all, thank you for joining us for this conversation. Long overdue and uh, I'm happy I'm able to finally It's do great it. to have you here. I think since we started this program, you've put out at least two, three books. You seem to be pumping out those books every few months, and we'll get into how you do that. I don't know if you'll share all the secrets. Just enough. <laughs> just enough to keep us uh, buying. Let the Eilam's appetite. Exactly. That's right. But the, let's, let's get to Yosheb B'Seser. What possessed you to write a book, or really a Sefer, on a solitary capital of Tehillim? Okay, so I got a call in January, maybe this late December, January, from a Rav in Baltimore, Rabbi Eichenstein, who is a game changer, completely transformed the Ranchley area, if you know Baltimore a little bit, and he's infused the entire community with Torah and excitement for Limerat Torah, and he reached out to me and he says to me that there's a Yid, a, a wonderful Jew, uh, who wants to do something for COVID. His name is Dr. Moshe Eisen, he's the one that dedicated the book, I, and he's an, an exceptionally fine person, and he calls me up and he says, Rabbi Spiro, I believe that the world needs to know that the cure to COVID is not the vaccine. The cure to COVID needs to be the Rabbi Nishlele. And he asked me, he said, Yosheb B'Seser is a capital. And I, you know, if you, do, you read the book a little bit and you do a little research, you'll discover that Yosheb B'Seser is Taka, the prayer of protection. And I thought to myself, this speaks to me very much. Because people are scared. Everybody's scared. And when we get past COVID, fully past COVID, the Rabbi Nishan will send something else. We're always scared. We're scared to live our day-to-day -day lives. And imagine if you could have a prayer of protection to carry around with you. And the more I went into it, the more I researched it, the more I learned about it, you know, there's a certain siyat deshmaya that when you write about something, Hashem sends you tidbits and nuggets of inspiration. I just took off from there. Well, it's fascinating to read in your Sefer that, and many people may not know this, that Yoshiba Sefer is this, and you could tell us about it, how it's a tefillah that was said as early as Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Talk about Rabbeinu, that for a moment. Moshe Rabbeinu said it when he was, uh, by the Akamas HaMishkan it was said, it was said throughout the last uh, two and a half thousand years, the Hashemayim said it in battle. And if you think about it, think about all the times we say Yeshiva Seyser. We say Yeshiva Seyser every Matzah Shabbos. We say Yeshiva Seyser Pesukah de Zimra on Shabbos. We say Yeshiva Seyser when we go to sleep at night. We say, the Chashmonaim said a lot of people have the meaning to say Yeshiva Seyser by Adlokas Ner Chanukah. By every Levaya, we escort the mace with Yeshiva Seyser. Yeshiva Seyser protects Klali, so it has protected. I think it was Rabbi Kiva Eger and the Chassam Seifer both encouraged strongly the recitation of Yeshiva Seyser during the Magaifa, when there was uh, whatever Magaifa was back then, cholera and other things. And um, as recent as 1948, the Chazanish said that the tefillah of Yeshiva Seyser should be shogur al piyam shal kol kal Yisrael. It should be fluent on the lips of every yid because kal Yisrael is under siege. You have a tefillah to protect you. It's amazing. It's amazing. And Baruch Hashem, when I have the opportunity to write about something like this, and, it, and I've implemented a little bit of it into my life, 
it's a game changer. It's bitachin. It's bitachin, and it's a game changer. And I money back guarantee, not in the book, well, maybe on the book also, but money back guarantee that if you start to learn about bitachin and allow it to work its magic on your life, you'll be a different person. You'll enjoy life so much more. So you kind of answered what I was going to ask you, and that is, what's the difference between writing a book like this one and some of your many other books, which are comprised of inspiring stories. What is the approach that you take to write something like this? So and also, if I may yeah. ask you, where do you start as far as Svarim are concerned? Do you just open up a Sefer Tehillim and hope that uh, ideas will start filling your head? Okay, so first of all, full confession, I'm a Svarimholic. And um, at home, Baruch Hashem, I have, I don't know, 15 Svarim shranks of Svarim. Um, and they're busting, double and triple deep. And uh, shout out to Beagle Eisen Swarm Store, where my friends there supply me with all the necessary Swarm. So first of all, you got to invest in, this, in whatever you're writing. I'm writing on Yosheb Seser. Whatever there is about Yosheb Seser, gobble it up, you know. And hopefully, Mitzvah you're able to find the necessary and proper Divraitarian inspiration. Um, but I, I want to get back to something else you said. You said, where do you start with, with writing a book or... You know, Shalom Kamenetsky once gave me a nice compliment, and he said, um, you know, your stories are a little different. He said, your stories don't have so much story, but the point is very big. A lot of times you have a big story, long, long story with chariots and horses and, and magical carpet rides, whatever else happens, but you get to the point of the story, what do you take out of it? A lot of times it's hard to find the takeaway. So I look for the takeaway. I look for the takeaway. And, and it doesn't have to be a big story, but if it's a small story with a powerful message, that's what people walk away with. So when people share stories with you, or you read them in Svarim, and you decide to adapt them for your book, you're saying that's the ingredient you're looking for, a story with the takeaway, more than an extravagant plot with all types of excitement. Okay, so, so you're asking me a little bit what's the secret. Yeah. So first of all, I, I want to I mention that when, Zlatowicz, I, I, when I first uh, started writing for art school, I think it's 18, 19 years ago, Baruch Hashem, and art school, by the way, changed my life, and I'm incredibly grateful to everybody, and to Rabbi Zlatowicz, to Rabbi Sherman, and now to Gedalia, and to everybody. Um, it's amazing. I'm from Biederman and Mendy, and I, 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 it's an incredible team, and I know I miss many people, um, but they know how grateful I am. And I walked into the office, and Rabbi Zlatowicz is sitting there, and he says, Yechiel, you know what makes your book special? And I'm getting all ready to like melt on a beautiful compliment. And he says, <laughs> there's really nothing different between your stories and everybody else's. But Hashem blessed you with mazel. And I feel even a sefer needs mazel. Who decides if this sefer should be read or that? It's mazel. Hashem decided it. So I don't attribute any of the success to myself. It's all mazel. Siat Deshmai and Hashem blessed me with incredible siyat deshmaya, and I'm, I'm overwhelmed with it. But if you're looking for one nekuda that I look for in a story, that I tell people all the time, the key to a good story is you need to be able to give the listener or the reader an underdog to identify with. They, everybody wants to cheer for the underdog. And whatever it is that the underdog is suffering from, is challenged with. If you can connect the reader to the underdog, 
you got a great story. So because it's someone, then people get behind him, right. and they're like excited, and they're cheering for him. They're cheering for him while they're reading. They're they're like hopefully reading that there's, mm-hmm. you know. It's, uh, so anyone facing an assignment or a challenge, in essence, becomes yeah, that underdog. And, and, and whatever the challenge is, everybody's challenge is big to them. You know, when COVID broke out, so there were people that were saying some pretty strong comparisons that this is our generation's Holocaust. And, and many people dispelled that and said, why do you, it's ridiculous. I mean, people in the Holocaust didn't have food. They were being hunted down and we have plenty of food and we sleep in our own beds. And I think one Nakuda that people need to remember is we're weak and we're fragile and we're vulnerable. And for us, this is very big. And that challenge is tremendous for us. And there's many, many, many people, and especially kids, who struggle through this and, and are searching to find themselves and to find the answers, struggling with Amuna, and hopefully you find a good uh, source of inspiration. I, I think that if a kid would read a little bit of Yosha B'Seis, feel a little closer to Hashem, connect a little more with them, it's a, it's a game changer. Speaking about finding yourself, I know you, you grew up in Cleveland. Who were the formative figures in your life during your formative years who impacted you and influenced you as you found what your calling in life was going to be? Okay, loaded question. Um, so many influences in my life that I'm so grateful for. Um, grew up in a, just the, the greatest upbringing anybody could hope for, my parents. Uh, it should be gesund, and they were incredible. And I sent me to the academy, and the academy was wonderful under Rabbi Nesla's his leadership, a great rebellion. My father once told me something. He says, not, you're not going to love every Rebbe the same amount, but every Rebbe has something to offer you. And over the years, every Rebbe I had offered me something unique and special. Um, I remember when I was in seventh grade, Rabbi Label Sheinbaum, used to invite us to his home, cold Friday night, Cleveland, Cleveland Heights, it's snowing, it's quiet. We'd go, I'd walk about seven-tenths of a mile from my house to his house, hot challenge from Rebelabel and his Rebetzin. And he would dazzle us with stories, just a few of us, of the Weitzenerov. Spoke to me very much. I was in eighth grade, I was in Tel Zeshiva then, Rebitzuk Schwartz, who is still my Rebbe, um, the greatest storyteller and Rebbe. I, I, I just wanted to be him in the classroom. Um, and his stories, I remember when Rabbi Shalom Shadron came to Cleveland Tells, he would come, it was an event. He stayed by Rabbi Haskell Monk's house and he, and, and, and he would come for El sometimes. I remember, I once dabbed, I came late to Shachris. And I dabbed in the back of the Mechina Right next to Rav Shalom Shadron. He would, he, he would come like we had giants visiting us. And um, he was dominating the Yechidus because was, he was dominating Nates. And it was a late... Uh, but I remember my Rebbe followed around Rav Shalom Shadron from the moment he got there till the moment he left. And he had a little pad. You know those old memo pads that, that flipped sure, over? Sure. And he wrote, I think he said, a hundred stories. He jotted down. Just from that visit. Just from that, those few days. He followed him. 
wherever he went, you know, he spoke to Balabatim, he spoke to Rabbein, he spoke to... And um, so that was very, very, made a big Rishim on me. And I used to write down what my Rebbe said. I had my notebooks, and I, I still, you know, even until I got my phone and my, my computers, but I used, to, I used to jot those down. And then my Rebbe Muvik, Rabban Shalhalman, was, uh, he, you know, I remember it was uh, one, tough, uh, one tough night for high school yeshiva bacher. And um, I just wanted to talk to somebody, and, and Rabanchel is just the easiest person in the world to talk to. And he just had, he just understood me. He got me. And I remember walking back um, late after Myriv. He kept me for like an hour and a half. And we schmoozed about everything. And I remember walking back. I felt so good. And I, I remember right there I said, I want to be able to do that for somebody else. I, I, I want to I wanna be able to make somebody else feel good. Like that, like that. Not much like that. And um, from then on, I wanted to be a Rebbe. I wanted so to be a Rebbe. that was the clincher. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to be a Rebbe. I always wanted to be a Rebbe. Did you uh, know what, what age boys you would want to teach? Did you know what capacity you wanted to well, serve in? I, you know, my first job was in Torah School of Greater Washington, Rabbi Yitzhak Charner, who had tremendous Akkara Satayv to, taught me so much about teaching. I was teaching fifth and sixth grade boys and fourth grade girls. I was learning in Lakewood. It was my fifth year in Kyle. And I said to my wife one day, we don't have any money. <laughs> I need a job. And I, went, and I thought I was all that in a bag of chips. Everybody's going to grab me. Are you kidding? <laughs> and, I, and, I, um, and I started searching around. And uh, Thomas Harris Placement and Laser Goldstein, they helped me. And, and I was getting offered these jobs like in, in the boondocks out of nowhere. And, and finally, I got, I got this you know, possible you know, job opportunity. And he told me it's going to be fifth and sixth grade boys and fourth grade girls. And I said, I'm not teaching fourth grade girls. And I hung up the phone. And I said to my wife, I need a job. <laughs> and I called him back. I said, I'd like to take a problem. And I did. And, and I, I enjoyed it immensely. And I still have a connection with a lot of those students, both the boys and the girls. Mm-hmm. The girls, Baruch Hashem, married with like five, six kids, you know. Wow. Um, and then I decided, then I, I went to TA, where I've been for 23 years. In Baltimore. In Baltimore. Uh, Talmudical Academy, Yeshiva Chatz in Baltimore. And it's in my home. I live right across the street from Yeshiva. Magnificent, oh, wow. sprawling, $25 million camp. It's gorgeous, gorgeous. And it's 1,100 kids in the school. And I wanted to be a Rebbe of an age where I could make an impact and maintain a shaykhis forever with the kids. Mm. Every Rebbe's great and every Rebbe's you know, has their calling. I didn't think that I could do that in elementary school, um, even though that's the purest age. And um, eighth grade is an age when you can help direct them. They're young teenagers, they're growing up, they're maturing, or hopefully, and I help try to guide them to yeshiva and, and Baruch Hashem. I've, you know, it's, I've, I've been eighth grade Rebbe for 23 years. So for 23 years, about five years or so, four years after you started teaching, you put out your first book. Now, at that point, what prompted you to invest as much effort and time that, as goes into putting out a book? And you know as well as anyone, yeah. having written dozens of books, yeah. both biographies, storybooks, svarim, you've written on the, the gamut of uh, Tyra literature. What possessed you at that point to do it? Okay, so what... I'm, I'm in camp. I'm a, I've been a camp guy. You've written about camp. 
Um, and by the way, let me just say that Yitzhi Yitzhak has such a big role in my life. He's worked for the Ated, and he's patient with me. I'm always late. He's always doing the kindest things for <laughs> me. Um, we've been friends for a long time. I'm very grateful Thank to you. him. And of course, under the leadership of Penny Lipschitz, also a close friend. Um, so I was in camp. I grew up in camp. I was in Camp Colterra in Cleveland as a kid. I was in Camp Go to Toronto as a little kid, uh, 7, 8, and 9, or 9, 10, 11. People sent their kids away then, you know. And then I went to Colterra in Cleveland, which was on the Tel Zeshiva campus. Sure. I was there one year. And, um, and then I went to a day camp, and then I came back to Colterra. I was there for three years. I'm there today in Colterra. Right, we should know, mention that. Ago, right. Sure. So, um, so I remember in my early years in, as a head staff member in camp, I started to realize that the most powerful thing you can have in your arsenal is a story. Like, what do you do? Um, I remember one, one time I, I ended up going to Rayim, and I was in Agra Midwest, and then Rayim, um, and then I was in Manavu for 20 years. And I remember one night, in, you know, it's, uh, there was a, a Catskill rainstorm, thunderstorm, blackout. It's pitch black in the dining room. It's getting dark. Now what? And uh, Rabbi Aaron Bash, who was the head counselor, said, Keely, you got a story? I said, yeah, I got a story. And with great tziat dishmaya, I started to tell a story. And I was doing it loud with the gans Ganskite, and the kids were quiet. And afterwards, Rabbi Bash gave me a nice compliment. And, um, and my wife, of course, who I owe everything to, but she doesn't like when I talk about her, she said to me afterwards, you got to write a book write a book, and I said, I don't know how to type. I, I, I don't, you know, and she says, you record the stories in a little tape recorder, and I will transcribe everything that you write. And I did 10 stories, and she transcribed it down to the ums, and well, you know, unedited completely. I thought it was great, but it was... And I sent it to, um, and, I, and, I, and I, I thought it was good. I, I, I thought the stories were good. I only had 10. And I sent it to a couple publishers, and, and, and they didn't take it. And I sent it to Rabbi Sherman. First, Charlotte Friedland was the, working in art school at the time, and she, I guess, showed it to Rabbi Sherman. And then Rabbi Sherman called me one day, and he said, uh, Yechiel, you have a second? And I said, yeah. He says, are you ready for your life to change? We're going to take the book. And I said, the book? I didn't write a book. He goes, we believe in you. You will write a book. And I started to collect stories. And after the first book came out, first of all, they put on the first, um, on the first book, they wrote, um, inspiring stories by a master teacher, something like that. Storyteller. Storyteller, master storyteller. And, and it was called Touch by the Story, uh, yeah. you should mention. Uh, did it say master storyteller? It might have said oh. master teacher. Really? Master, uh, it could be, could be right. I don't know, I have to go check. Um, we're in art school, we should be able to, <laughs> to, to find a book, yeah. Um, and and I, I called up Avram Biederman, who's the greatest editor and has also helped me get through the thick and thin here. And 
I said, I'm not, who, who said I'm a master? He said, well, if you weren't till now, you are now. And, okay, and part of what art school did was they helped me believe in myself. I wasn't lacking confidence, but... So there's a huge difference between speaking and writing. Speaking, you get to feed off of the audience. You get to be spontaneous. Writing is, a, is also an art form. I mean, speaking is also, as you, as you know, as well as anyone, having addressed audiences all over the world. But writing a book is a whole different avoida. Right. How did you approach that? Once Rabbi Sherman gave you the green light and you're collecting stories, now you have to kind of form the stories into something suitable. Okay, so this, what, I, what I'm about to tell you is not going to, people that are teaching English are not going to be thrilled with this. Um, but I presented this to English teachers, a group of English teachers, um, and, and afterwards, like, they thanked me. I grew up, and grammar was a big deal. And a lot of kids don't like grammar. They don't like the punctuation. They're like, I think the biggest challenge is to take what's in your heart and express it onto, onto anything, piece of paper. There are great editors out there. Now, I was blessed. Mrs. Susan Leaptag was my first editor. She was incredible. She did the first book, by the way, that I did. Mm -hmm. She did it for free. Really? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't have the money to pay her at, up front. I told her when I get my first check, I'll pay you for the editing. And she said, I'm giving it to you as a gift. It was, like, unbelievable. Anyone who knows what's involved in editing yeah. knows that that was and quite then, a gift. And, and then... I, I used Mrs. Leaptag for a number of books, and then I also added on Mrs. Tova Salb. And Mrs. Tova Salb, anything that I've produced is because of her. She knows everything. She's gracious. She tries to stick to my flavor, but she's the one that puts everything into order. She's the one that gives it structure. And, and I'll tell you the truth, that I think when I started speaking and writing, both of them, I think you start, I started to collect stories, and because of that, I started to collect inspiration. You know, and you look for inspiration. You know, people that collect baseball cards, they, they, they have a nose for it. Mm -hmm. Collect stamps, bottle caps, whatever it is that you collect. I started to collect stories, and I started to collect inspiration. And the whole thing, again, I, I, I really felt like Hashem was helping me every step of the way it's from finding the right svarim to finding the right people, the many people that have trusted me with their books and with their, you know, and then people that have complimented me. And I can't say that enough. You know, people think, I was once in a svarim store in Shabsi's Judaica, great svarim store. Like, it's in Baltimore and it's a real, it's a good hush of a New York store <laughs> in Baltimore. We have that, by the way. For anybody who ranks on Baltimore, I just want to tell you something. Baltimore's fantastic. We got a thriving, tired community with all the amenities. And somebody comes over to me and with a little girl, and she says, Rabbi Spiro, do you have a second? And he says, and he says to his daughter, oh, please don't bother him. Don't mind. She goes, I love your books. And he says, I'm so sorry. I said, sorry. What a genuine compliment to get mm -hmm. from a seven-year-old girl. That also helps feed. It helps sure. feed, and you know, and then the, the speaking comes together with the writing, and again, Baruch Hashem. So how does a busy Rebbe, a busy Machanach, who gives 110% in the classroom, 
and preparing, and we know what, or we think we know what's involved in being a Rebbe in 5781, how do you find the time to fit in the writing and the writing of the books and the research and the editing and the agonizing? There's a lot of time and effort that goes into it. How do you balance the two? Okay. And the speaking, I should imagine, as well, which involves traveling right. and all that. Okay, so first of all, my day and night job is being a Rebbe. Just yesterday I was talking to somebody and he says, so you're a Rebbe part-time? I go, no, no, no. I'm a Rebbe full-time. I pride myself on being there every day. I cannot never, ever miss. I try not to. Shem should continue to help me to do so. Um, that's my day and night job. That anchors me. My Talmidim give me life. They, I love them. They... They let me know when I'm doing well, and when I'm not doing well, I can tell from the way they're behaving or not. Um, and I get a lot of chizuk from my fellow rabbeim. And school's great. Yeshiva's great. That's where I, that's my anchor. And after that, Hashem gives you the time. So where do I find the time to do it? I'm not really super organized. I'm not, you know, I'm more, uh, I don't know if I should share this, like people have said I'm ADHD. Mm-hmm. I'm jumpy. I jump from one thing to another. I don't even have an office at home. I sit on my couch. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, try to use in spare moments. I'm early for carpool. You have 15 minutes. Pull out my phone. I start writing. Yeah. Um, standing in line in a supermarket. And, and the truth is that when you're able, when a great editor, somebody who's able to help me along, and so I just send stuff, you know. It's not like I sit down, okay, I'm going to sit down with, you know, it doesn't work that way. And, and also, you're always operating because you're always looking for the inspiration. You could always pick up material wherever you are, yeah. right? You're, you're that type of person. You're always looking for that magic. You know, yesterday I was walking out of my house, coming to Yeshiva. And I look, I look back and I thought like I had dandelions and weeds on my, in my front lawn. I looked and they were gone. And then when I came back, few hours later, they were there. Inspiration struck me. That means in the morning, there are no weeds. Of course, it's a metaphor. Mm-hmm. But you can find inspiration anywhere. The weeds come later in the day. Right. Start off every morning, you're fresh. So There's inspiration to be had. Now, the, you've written, as I mentioned before, you've written short story books, which is uh, a books comprised of dozens and dozens of stories. But you also undertook the, the daunting task quite a few times already of writing biographies, which, I, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think in the Rav Gifter biography that you wrote, you write in your introduction how when people would call your house during the time that you were writing the book, maybe in jest, either you or your family would answer Gifter residence because you were so all enveloped in writing the book about this particular great person. What's the difference and, and how did you first have the guts to take on writing a biography, which is a tremendous undertaking. Um, the, first, the first biography I wrote was Rav Gifter. Rabbi Meir Zlatowicz and Rabbi Nassim Sherman both encouraged me to do so. They felt they owed a debt of Akara Satayv to Rav Gifter, that Art Scroll's success was because Rav Gifter stood up way back when and, and said, Art Scroll needs, needs to be. And, um, and they backed me. And I don't know if it was great in the beginning, you know, you learn. And then you have to be inspired by the person you're working on. It can't just be a book, you know, without sounding cheesy. It's a mission. 
Mm-hmm. You, you, you need to admire and fall in love with the subject. And I, I'd like to think that everybody I've written on, I've, I've, I've become a Talmud of theirs, whether it's uh, Rav Kalevsky I just wrote about, um, Rav Gifter, Rav Scheinberg, yeah. um, or I wrote about... Rabbi Sternhill, uh, you wrote a Rabbi biography. Sternhill, um, and I wrote about uh, Rav Chaim Goldberg, sure. the great Balt Stucker, or Gabbai Stucker. Now I'm working on a book on, on Rav Shmilu Berkowitz, who was a Manal and Passaic. He was a close friend of mine. I loved him. Um, everybody who ever met him loved him. I loved the family. And I'm in love with working on the book. I'm in love with it. And, and I'm so inspired by him. He was a Manal. Could you tell us a, a, maybe a story, something, anything comes to mind? I'll tell you mind. one little tidbit, yeah. just one little thing. And again, I'm work, every day I'm, I'm writing things and sending it to my editor. Um, one little thing, because I think what's beautiful about Rib Shmilu, they call him Rib Shmilu, I mean, later on he was Rib Shmuel and uh-huh. Rabbi Berkowitz, but he, he, he lived in Cleveland, and then later on in Passaic. And when he lived in Cleveland, he davened in a shul called Kalyureim. Later he would become a rav in Passaic and named his shul Kalyureim because of Cleveland. And one person told me he was a young Kayin. And he went to go duchen for the first time. And when he came back, he went to get his shoes on. And he put on a shoe, couldn't, couldn't put his shoe on. Something's in there. And he took it off and he looked inside there was a little candy. And every time he duchened, Rup Shmilu would put a candy in his shoe. Which, which, is, which is what his whole life was. Adults also need candies. Right. Everybody needs candies. Everybody needs sweets and treats and encouragement. And he, that's what he did. He made life he sweet for other people. That's, that's right. In fact, I, I don't know if this will be the title, but like somebody told me, he held us in his heart. Mm. He held everybody he ever met in his heart. So how can you not fall in love with that? Well, we look forward to reading it as soon as it's done. Going back to short stories for a moment, because this is kind of something that I I deal with as someone who collects stories, writes stories. I love the short story because it gets to the point. And and you kind of also try to find those anecdotes that are going to resonate. And whether it's an underdog, as you mentioned, which always resonates, or it's something that comes out of left field, where yeah. you know, kind of the unexpected. Have you found at all, writing stories for 20 years, that some stories are starting to sound the same, where it's kind of the same plot, just with different people, and how do you keep it fresh? Well, if it does sound the same, then it's not a good story. If you can predict the ending of the story in the first two paragraphs, move on. It's not a good story. Mm-hmm. It, like you said, it needs to be unexpected. You need to get the curveball, and you go, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. Right. Um, so that's part of it. I think one of the things that continues to inspire me is the, the greatness of Kalisol, the greatness of the Jewish people. And, and again, I don't want to sound preachy. I hate preaching. But the, the ability for even the most downtrodden Jews, the most distant Jews, to rise up to the occasion to be great. And that doesn't get tired. It hasn't been tired for 2,000 years. And there's, I remember there was a couple of years ago, um, Eric Saul went to war. And there was, somebody was killed. And, and I told somebody, I want to watch part of that Leviah. You will see Emuna like we've never seen before. I remember a father got up. He did not look like me and you. No beard, 
No black yarmulke, sandalim, short sleeves, and he got up and he sang. Sang it at his child's levaya. That doesn't get old. It doesn't get old. No, I don't think stories get old. I sure hope it doesn't get old because then I'm out of business. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying, I don't think it gets old. I, I, and, and again, I have a great lab. By the way, I have a lab. My classroom is my lab. Mm-hmm. If, my, if I tell a story and my class says, mm, and by the way, they do say, mm. So do you try stories out on them, so to speak? Well, whenever I come in, I start the day with a story or something. Yeah, I never come in, open your gemara. That's not me. Mm-hmm. I'm, it works for some of It doesn't work for me. I walk in, I have a story, whatever's, ha- whatever's happening, just a story, start them off. And sometimes they'll go, mm. I'll go, you didn't like the story? What do you mean you like the story? And they go, we want the story. Or also, the best lamb is my kids. Because at a Shabbos table, or whenever it is, I'll tell a story, and if they like it, I'll go, Daddy, that's a good story. And if, wow. it's a good, if they say it's a good story, then you know it's okay. good. Now, even when they say, mm, no, terrible story, if I really believe in the story, I'll push it through anyway. But... Mm-hmm. It's a good audience. One of my favorite things that you do every year, and I look forward to it, is your annual drushes, either like Tishabov day, usually Yom Nairam time. You have a kayach when the moment is most poignant to make it even more poignant and bring out the emotion of the moment. How much time do you spend preparing those particular drushes? which seem to be Shavu Lechal Nefesh, people appreciate them. I'm sure you hear from others, I'm sure I'm not the only admirer, but uh, how much time goes into preparing such a speech, which it can't be generic, it has to be original, but you're also tapping into age-old messages and emotions that somehow have to be made fresh for today's generation. Okay, so first I want to say something, and I'm really 40 minutes too late for saying this. I don't like to do interviews, even though I'm out there and people see my face. I don't like talking. Um, and don't worry, I, lo- I love COVID as much as the next guy. I don't like saying that I do this and it worked. I really, I, I'm not comfortable. Well, then we appreciate even more that you came. <laughs> and that's why, by the way, I pushed off all these interviews Thank until you. now. Thank but, you. But I, uh, from the moment I know I'm speaking, wherever it is, there's a, there's a mental notebook and I have a file on my phone, and I have files at home. Any, if I'm speaking six weeks from now on a subject, and I know what I'm, I asked them, what am I speaking about? I start writing down. No, I know I'm speaking about Tisha B'Av all year. year. before. There are certain moments during the year that are Tisha B'Av. Today, I had a Tisha B'Av moment. There's moments that are Tisha B'Av, and, and um, I try to write that down as it happens. Part, I think, of, of why people are inspired, I hope, is because some of it's not prepared. Those moments that you're talking about are not prepared. You can't prepare those moments. I, 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 you know, sometimes I don't even like to look at the audience at those moments. You like to close your eyes. I remember uh, when I lived in Silver Spring, I had the schus of hearing from Rabbi Lipiansky. I davened Yim Kippur with him. And it was a small little trailer we were davening in. I don't think there were more than 30 people in the trailer. 30, 40 people max. And he spoke right before Neila. From the moment he began speaking till the moment he finished, his eyes were closed. Talisibur cup, eyes closed. He was really speaking just for people to hear. And I think you can 
you know, you can feel differently when you do that. But uh, again, all siyad dishmaya, it really is. It's not, uh, I'm not just saying it. So you're always looking, and you're always jotting down, making mental notes. I think so, yeah. Now going back to Chinuch for a moment, you spend your day in the classroom, you've clearly seen differences in the way Chinuch has evolved. Um, I know that your Chinuch messages, whether it's in the Chinuch Roundtable, which you're a panel of, or when I've heard you speak on Chinuch, you have a message that resonates. I don't know if it's Alderich Rabbi Trank, but there's definitely a flavor of Rabbi Trank in what you do. And, and there's a reason why, why youngsters, you, they find you endearing. But speak about Chinuch for a moment and how it's changed. And it, I'm assuming it has over the last 23 years since you entered the classroom. And what approach should people be taking today that maybe is different than what they did years before? Okay, loaded question. Um, how has Chinuch changed? I think, I think part of what's been consistent about Chinuch is that it always changes. I don't know if Chinuch is different um, from 100 years ago in that the Rebbe had to relate to the times, whatever the times were then. Um, you mentioned Rabbi Trank, and when I think of Rabbi Trank, I think of Rabbi and Mrs. Trank. Sure, of I, course. I call her for advice all the time, and she is, uh, she's also very special. No question. Um, you need a sprinkle of, of, let's call it Trank magic, um, and that works. But kids also need structure. Kids need structure. And I think that's one of the secrets. You can't let kids just do whatever they want. But to, to think about what's, if I had to think of one core idea in Chinuch um, without, again, just sounding cheesy, because it's that you have to relate to the child in some other area than the subject matter you're learning. Find the common ground, whether it's music, or a hobby of his, or an interest he has, whatever he's interested in. Something like sports, sports or something like that. Sure, sports. I follow sports also, not only because of the Talmudim, but, you know, and um, I don't know if anybody's going to be pleased with that, but that, that's a point where I, I have one kid in my class who is a, he's in, lives in Baltimore. He's a Giants fan. He's a Yankees fan. So the other day, the Yankees, I don't know what you said on camera, but the other day, the Yankees were beating up on the Cleveland Indians, my Cleveland Indians. And he's a quietish kid, and he, and he walks right up to my desk, closer than he's ever been. And, and, and I said, are you trash-talking me about the New York Yankees? And he didn't even say yes. He goes, so... That's our starting point. And then once First of all, aren't they Oriole fans in Baltimore? What, what, they are. He's a, he's a Yatesim in a cloud. Oh, but okay. yeah. If you followed the Orioles, you'd have a hard time after a while also. But, um, but find something where you connect to the child in some other area than the subject matter you're learning. Connect with them on that and relate to them. And that, that's always your safe area. Mm-hmm. Because even if he didn't have a good day in school or a good week in school, you always have that. So I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's something that's very important today because kids got so much going on and so many challenges and struggles. Find something that he likes and like it. Mm-hmm. And I assume that camp also gives you an opportunity. You're, you're a big camp machanach. 
where it gives you an opportunity to connect to kids out of the milieu of the classroom. Classroom don't work for every kid, no, no. but camp works for most kids. It, 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 it just brings out so much of their personality that maybe they don't get, doesn't get to be manifest during the year. So one of the things I told, uh, you know, one of the great places um, that nobody sees is the Rebbeim's room in a yeshiva. And if you have a good Rebbeim's room, so Rebbeim bounce ideas off of each other. A lot of great ideas come from there, and hopefully Menalim will allow those ideas to come to fruition. But one of the things that we've been discussing lately is how do we get good kids who aren't good students to become good Jews? That's great. That, that, not everybody is going to be a Kama Talmud Chacham. Not everybody loves learning. Not everybody loves Yiddishkeit. But they'll grow into it. They're going to feel good about themselves. So many, I mean, we know this. So many of today's big supporters of yeshiva were people who in yeshiva didn't do so well. Mm -hmm. So how can we get them to feel good about the Yiddishkeit, feel good about themselves, even if they're not doing Malam Gemara or Chumash or whatever it is? Um, and what answer did you come up with? What is the answer? <laughs> Something. The answer is connect to them. That's the answer. Mm -hmm. The answer is connect to them where... You always maintain a shaykh. It's first day of school, I walk up to the whiteboard and I write my cell phone number on the board and my email address. I say, if you ever need me, ever, for whatever it is, call me, text me, email me. And do, do the boys call? Oh, not stop. Really? I, I once had a boy, I was his one phone call. Yeah. I was his one phone call. Wow. He got into trouble. It was 15 years later. He said, you said I could call you anytime. I once had a kid call me. Um, he was in a fight with his parents. And he called me from a closet. <laughs> I, and and I, by the way, I'm not unusual. Tons of Rebbeim are doing this. Tons of Rebbeim relate. And tons of people have tell me them like this. I teach a great class. But kids get older. Life gets complicated. Mm -hmm. And... They need to know that there's somebody there, and if they, if they know you're there for them, they'll never let go, because you, you're not criticizing them, you're not finding their faults, you don't know all their chesrainas, or right. maybe they told you their chesrainas, but you're not pointing it out to them constantly, so they need that. What's something that, if you were able to get up on a soapbox and address Gans Kalah Yisrael, that you would be able to sheer with the masses about what a Rebbe is, what a Mechanach is, if there's one message that you wish people would know, because we don't really know, people who don't work in the trenches, we don't really know. We think we know, we imagine what the struggle is, how hard it is to be a Rebbe. What would you say? I hope this is broadcast to the whole world. <laughs> I really do. I've said this by some Rebbeim gatherings. If I've had an opportunity to speak to groups of Rebbeim, to be Mechazek them, large groups of Rebbeim. I hope every board member in the world, every manal in the world, hears what I'm about to say. Because it's, it's, it's a very important question. Rebbeim need guilt. They need help financially. They're sacrificing their lives. These are talented people. If they worked in a law firm, they'd be making three, $400,000 a year. If they worked as accountants, they'd be well taken care of. If they were, they're bright, they could be aggressive businessmen, they could be super successful. What do they decide to do? They're going to sacrifice their entire lives and the lives of their families for your child. And it's been literally, you know, it's been beaten to death. 
Mm-hmm. And a few years ago, Rabbi David Elzeri got up courageously. But I'll go to the convention. And, and, convention. and he demanded, we got to do something. 40 out of 804 schools acted on it. That means a lot of schools didn't act on it. You owe it to the Rabbeim. Find the money. Don't make them beg. Don't make them become balichayv. Because if they are, they can't teach your children. So if there's one thing that people need to know about Rebbeim, is it's a struggle. And we need chizuk. And we need to be mechazik each other. And don't think that everything's okay always. It's not. We put on a good face sometimes, and we walk into the classroom, and we give it our all. But it would be so much easier. And if you mamish cannot help, you can always write a note. And tell that Rebbe what difference they've made in your child's life. Tell that Beis Yaakov teacher. And Beis Yaakovs are struggling. They need teachers. They need teachers. We want the, you know, the girls to be able to help support their husbands. They can't do it on... We need teachers. We need Rebbeim. If there's one thing I have to say, Rebbeim need your chizuk. They need your guilt. And I don't chas mean to demean. I know everybody's trying their best. But let's stop pushing it aside. Well, on that note, thank you for being candid about that. Thank <laughs> too you candid? for was I too candid? no, not at all. You said what had to be said, and I'm sure many rabbeim menalim will concur with what you said. And uh, we can't say it enough. The rabbeim, we, we owe them a debt of gratitude that can never be paid. And uh, you're maybe you know maybe loylam haba. So we thank you on behalf of what you do for Tinagar Shabbos Rabban. We thank you for the positive messages that you share in your beautiful svarim and books. You. you should be zeicha to write many other, many svarim acherim ulusaimam in peace and prosperity, be matzliach in everything you do. Amen. Thank can you. I, can I end off with the bracha also? Yes, First absolutely. First of all, you should be matzliach in everything you do. Thank because you. Because you, you have such a role in Kalal Yisrael and you've enhanced my life personally, but so many people's lives. Thank you. I want to wish a special bracha to Rabbi Gedalia because Gedalia took over for his father and, and really, you know, he was, he was a, a son in his father's shoes. His father was larger than life and Gedalia has just taken art scroll to, to levels that I don't think anybody thought possible. He'll tell you, I thought it. I don't know if he thought it. <laughs> but it's amazing. He does it with, with warmth and encouragement and chizuk. And it's, it's a gewaltik chizuk to all of us. And art scrolls should be matzliach. Art scrolls changed the world. They've changed my life. I owe them so, so much. And it's Shem. They should continue to help bring us closer to Mashiach. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.